Welcome to the Peds NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, Clinical Assistant Professor at Catholic University of America in Washington, DC. And today we're gonna to talk about the rationale behind discharge education for acute gastroenteritis. As you already know, I'm a minimalist and I wanna avoid unnecessary interventions whenever possible. I'm a firm believer in skipping the unnecessary tests and treatments that only add time to the visit and create medical waste. And instead, I take an extra five minutes to talk to parents and help them understand what's going on with their child on their level, because I think that makes them more likely to buy into the treatment plan. I've had this approach for a long time, and acute gastroenteritis is the diagnosis where I first solidified this practice for myself. So stay tuned as we take those extra five minutes to prepare parents to care for their children at home after acute gastroenteritis. My doctoral project centered on my frustrations with excess resource utilization in the emergency department for patients with acute gastroenteritis. We know that children with mild or moderate dehydration can be rehydrated orally, but how many times have you heard, we're just going to tank them up and send them out, or we'll just give them fluids because that's what they came here for. All you're really doing is sending the kidneys on a wonderful normal saline vacation for an hour or so without actually curing the viral illness that's causing it. And those same symptoms that cause the family to seek care in the first place are more likely than not going to persist after the child goes home. Shouldn't we prepare parents for reasonable expectations and then arm them with the tools to intervene in their child's preferred environment? So I created a nurse-initiated pathway that focused on early initiation of oral rehydration with the hopes to decrease unnecessary medical interventions that have no prognostic value. And in my research, I found a few interesting studies that really shaped how I think about caregiver education. One cohort study found that children who receive IV fluids at their index visit were more likely to seek care again and twice as likely to return to the emergency department. The authors concluded that unnecessary IV fluids actually lead parents to believe that their child's illness was worse than it is. And Near It All in 2013 also showed that parents whose children receive IV fluids will expect it again next time showing that parental expectations burden the expectations of treatment because they view it as a necessary intervention in order for the adequate treatment of acute gastroenteritis. And since one of the major outcome measures of my intervention was patients who returned to the ED within 72 hours, I knew that it was important to frame the visit in a way that emphasized the same treatment at home with the expectation that children will have persistent symptoms of vomiting and diarrhea but that the focus should be on oral rehydration and the replacement of ongoing losses because this illness is self-limited. So what are the things we should talk about with parents when they go home with a diagnosis of acute gastroenteritis? That's a great question, but before I get started on that, I want to say that it's important to get the diagnosis correct in the first place. Gastro enteritis really requires the presentation of diarrhea with or without vomiting, fever, or abdominal pain. This does not include vomiting alone, 
because the differential diagnosis of vomiting without diarrhea is much broader, much more complicated, and it's an entirely different discussion. And discharging the child home assumes that you've successfully evaluated and managed their illness in your clinical setting, meaning that they've already demonstrated an ability to tolerate oral fluids before you get to that discharge education part of the visit. So let's go back to that treatment plan. Remember that oral rehydration therapy, or ORT for short, consists of two phases, rehydration and the maintenance of ongoing losses. What fluid should parents use? The World Health Organization recommends rehydration with a reduced osmolarity oral rehydration solution, or ORS, because hypertonic solutions like sodas can actually pull water into the stool and make diarrhea worse, while hypotonic solutions like water can cause fluid shifts that lead to hyponatremia and seizures. The specific electrolyte composition of the ORS isn't important for children with mild dehydration, and we can actually focus on the palatability of the fluid in order to encourage them to drink. One study by Friedman et al. in 2016 showed that children who were six months and older who were given half-strength apple juice had a reduced need for IV fluids compared with the formal ORS like Pedialyte because there are a lot of children who just really don't like the taste of it. Children with moderate dehydration do need a more formal oral rehydration solution. And Pedialyte is the most obvious choice in America where we have commercially available products at our fingertips. But a family could also make their own using a recipe that's available online if cost is prohibitive. I often prescribe a liter of Pedialyte with a refill just in case a family has Medicaid or an FSA account that'll pay for it. Either way, it's really important for us to reduce barriers to treatment and make sure that your patient gets what they need. Babies who are breastfed can continue unrestricted breastfeeding. How much should parents give? The World Health Organization recommends 75 mLs per kilo in the first four hours to achieve rehydration. I think a lot of providers set parents up for failure when they simply say, just take frequent small sips. Parents need tangible, quantifiable parameters to guide them so that they know how they're doing. When I teach ORT in clinic, I make parents pull out their phones and then pull up the timer app. Then I pull up about one ml per kilo, either in a syringe or a medicine cup, maxing at about 30 mLs, and I give it to the child, then hit go on the timer for five minutes. Tell them that when the timer goes off, do it again. And then do it again five minutes after that. And again five minutes after that. If they tolerate the fluid for about 20 to 30 minutes, they can double the volume. If they tolerate the fluid for the first hour, then they can drink unrestricted until they achieve the total volume goal. If they vomit in the meantime, they should pause and take a break for about 20 minutes, then start back at the beginning with a smaller volume. It's important to make sure that parents have the expectation that their child will continue to have vomiting and then give them this strategy for what to do when they vomit because a single episode of vomiting is not a failure of ORT. What I worry about is multiple episodes of vomiting despite this strategy, 
where they just really truly aren't able to tolerate oral fluids and the amount coming out is greater than the amount that stays in. Let's talk some more about ongoing losses. Make sure that parents know the goal volume to give the child, but they also need to replace any additional fluids from continued episodes of vomiting or diarrhea. The amount they'll give is around 10 mLs per kilo for each additional emesis or stool, but the World Health Organization also supports using a ballpark estimate of the volume based on the age of the child. For example, children under two years of age could have two to three ounces, and children who are two to 10 years of age can have three to six ounces of fluid for each additional vomitus or diarrhea. Older children can have as much fluid as they want. What about on Dancitron? We give Zofran out like candy, crossing our fingers that it scares off the bad juju causing nausea and vomiting. But what does the literature say about it? The evidence behind Ondansetron supports its use in the acute setting as an adjunct to ORT in patients with mild or moderate dehydration. Remember that it's not a cure because it's a virus that's infected the GI tract of your patient. But it can certainly help at supporting ORT and avoiding the need for IV fluids. A systematic review of Cochrane reviews showed no evidence to support multiple doses of Ondansetron following discharge. And here's my personal practice on that. I once had a patient who was around 18 months old with a flu-like illness. She had runny nose, cough, fever, vomiting. I gave her Ondansetron and Tylenol in the acute setting. She tolerated PO, so I sent her home with a prescription for 10 tabs in case the vomiting came back so that she could tolerate oral fluids at home. Well, she represented three to four days later with new onset type 1 diabetes in DKA with a pH of 6.9. I was devastated when I found out about this. And thankfully, she didn't have cerebral edema and she was treated successfully in the ICU but I have always beaten myself up on that case. I didn't cause her diabetes, and it's really common for diapered, nonverbal children with new-onset diabetes to go unnoticed because of the vague symptoms. Her flu-like illness is likely what pushed her teetering little body over the edge into DKA. But I have always regretted that my band-aid of sending the patient home with more Zofran resulted in a delay in her seeking care. I'm not wholly opposed to doing it, but if I do, the patient needs to be old enough to write a book report about Ondansetron. So usually that's around age seven or eight because they can more eloquently tell us in plain English how they feel. And I give a max of three doses because I want to know if a patient still needs it after that. Because we really need to be reevaluating persistent symptoms and their hydration status at that point. When can they restart solid foods? And what should they eat? Children can begin an age appropriate diet as soon as the rehydration phase is complete, so potentially within a couple of hours. Gone are the days of the brat diet because it lacks essential macronutrients like proteins and fat. 
We want children to be able to eat simple starches, lean meats, fruits and vegetables, and yogurt to help increase fluid uptake and add bulk to diarrheal stool. I usually tell families to avoid fast food and junk food because these high fat content foods can agitate vomiting or worsen diarrhea. But something like a home-baked chicken nugget would be fine. It's not necessary to restrict dairy, but I do think it's valuable for parents to know that a small percentage of children can have a rebound lactose intolerance following an acute GI infection. Are probiotics good for them? New evidence was published in 2018 by the PECARN group, which is a multi-center emergency medicine-based group all across the United States. It showed that in their well-powered, prospective, randomized, double-blind trial that children who received a five-day course of lactobacillus had no improvement over their counterparts who received placebo. So what does that mean? Patients who received probiotics failed to show any benefit with respect to the duration or frequency of vomiting or diarrhea, the rate of household transmission, or the duration of daycare or work absenteeism which means that when you prescribe probiotics, which cost about $18 for a pack of 30, while you may not be hurting your patient, you are certainly not helping them. And instead, you're lining the pockets of the $50 billion probiotic industry. So save your parents a few bucks and talk about return criteria instead. So what are the objective, quantifiable return criteria you want us to talk about? I am so glad you asked. It's really important for parents to know the specifics of what to look for at home and to have reasonable expectations of their child's continued but self-limited symptoms. Don't just tell them, come back if they get worse or aren't getting better. What does that even mean? And do you really want to see them again if they have even one more episode of vomiting or diarrhea? No? Well, you told them to. Tell them what to expect. Symptoms can continue for up to a week with vomiting and or diarrhea, but we want to make sure that we're replacing any of those episodes with more fluid intake by mouth. And seek medical attention if your child is unable to tolerate those fluids using the strategies that we discussed. If they have no urine in 12 hours or less than three voids in 24 hours. If they're difficult to wake up or excessively sleepy at a time that doesn't make sense. If they have severe abdominal pain that's snowballing, which is a word that I use to mean it's getting worse and worse and worse, rather than crampy and intermittent or symptoms that last longer than seven days, or if diarrhea has blood in it. Each of these specific return criteria correspond to an item on your differential diagnosis. Dehydration, severe infection, appendicitis, infectious diarrhea. And by both telling the parent about these criteria and documenting it in the medical record, you're protecting yourself and the child from a worsening illness that could cause them harm. Finish off by telling the family how to prevent the spread of illness with good hand washing. As you can see, it took an extra five minutes to explain all of this to the family. 
but think about the amount of time you're gonna save in unnecessary follow-up visits or emergency department presentations. It's not just about saving yourself time and money. It's about facilitating care for the child in the least restrictive, preferred environment, their home. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the PEDSNP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. There is no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the PEDSNP. You can see show notes and references at www.thepedsnp.com. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You're helping families take better care of their kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.